Okay, so we are still working through Acts of the Apostles, and we are in the third chapter. And Lord willing, I'm going to conclude Acts chapter 3 today. But uh, just a few points to share with you all before we get into Acts 3 and conclude it. By my last uh, reckoning, or my uh, quick skimming through the scriptures yesterday, I worked out that on ten occasions, uh, the Old Testament writings are quoted by Dr. Luke. Uh, chapter 116, he quotes David from the Psalms. Chapter 120, he quotes David from the Psalms. Uh, chapter 225, he quotes David again from the Psalms. Uh, chapter 234, 35, he quotes David again from the Psalms. And chapter 322, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18. So you get eight direct references from the Old Testament so far from Dr. Luke. And please understand that the Jews would have understood all of these verses. As clearly as you could expect them to do so, they would have been raised with the Jewish Tanakh, the Old Testament. In fact, it's quite possible that most of the Old Testament greats and the New Testament greats probably memorized the Tanakh inside out. Also worked out from chapter 3, 13, 3, 18, 3, 21, 3, 24 and 3, 25, there are five indirect references to the Old Testament. And I say this because the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. On top of that, you're going to get a huge transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, from law into grace. And that's why I said repeatedly how there are three parts of the Word of God, historical, doctrinal, and uh, spiritual. But on top of that, you've got an eschatological aspect. So historical, uh, doctrinal, spiritual, and eschatological. But three main aspects. And you've got to be very careful when you read the Word of God, how you decide for the Word of God that you don't teach uh, parts of Scripture which should be taken in a historical perspective and teach it from a doctrinal perspective. Also from chapter 2, 38, uh, to repent, and baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you read it very carefully, you will discover that no Jews on that Jewish day of Pentecost spoke in tongues. Which is very interesting because I see many people around the world baptizing new believers. And they follow Acts 2.38. And they say you need to be baptized in the name singular of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is problematic because as I said last time from Matthew 28. You were told to baptize in the name singular of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. But it was interesting to me when I was reading through Acts 1, 2 and 3 this morning. How I didn't, or I couldn't see any clear indication of the recipients from Acts 2.38 speaking in tongues. Which suggests to me that they were saved, but they didn't speak in tongues. Please always keep in mind that the term repentance has been very much uh, twisted and abused and cited by many people around the world, especially over the last 50 years or so. If you are a Calvinist, you think repentance means to turn from all of your sins in order to then be saved. Uh, and perhaps you are the flip side to that or you come from the alternative camp that you think that repentance is simply to say a prayer or to feel some remorse or quick one two three pray with me sort of situation in order to be saved repentance in essence means to turn it means to do a complete about turn not just say i know i'm a sinner lord please be merciful to me but to be sorry for who you are and what you are we were born in sin and even after we are saved we still continue to fall short of god's glory we are saved sinners so don't ever think you are something special once you are born again. You may be a child of the king, and you certainly are. You are a saved man or saved woman if you are born again, but you're still a sinner. And you will be a sinner until the day you are glorified, which doesn't happen in this life. It happens in the next life. So please be careful when you read these verses not to uh, read and detect something which isn't there. But uh, what I am going to do, and I will continue to do this, is as I read the verses, I will give it to you from an, an historical perspective... Uh, and then possibly offer it to you from a doctrinal perspective 
but uh, I think most of Acts is going to be historical and eschatological. Therefore, I'm going to give you the literal reading, give it to you from a historical perspective, and then spiritualise it. But don't make the mistake, please, that uh, you need to spiritualise all of the Bible. Be very careful. Like I said last time, all of the Bible is addressed to us, but it's not all for us. If you read the Word of God very carefully, if you read the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that most of the first five books are very much aimed at the Jews under the law. And that's why I said last time that Acts of the Apostles, as far as I am concerned, does appear very much to be like a fifth gospel. But let's continue on from Acts chapter 3. just want to back up to verse 19 to get the context, and then we'll conclude, if we can, in verse 26. Acts 3.19, please. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, and to the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since the world began. When you read this very carefully, you discover several points. First of all, there's no blood atonement, but on top of that, 19 says to repent, which I've already discussed, means to change your mind, or in this sense, in the context that it's found here, to acknowledge that the Jews crucified their Messiah, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, going into 15 and 16. But even more interesting than that, there's no guarantee of salvation straight away. Whereas we are told that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have everlasting life, present tense. In fact, you were told in First John that we can know that we have everlasting life right here and right now. But here, Peter's preaching this, this plan of salvation to the Jews, and yet... It's almost as if he is leaving the door slightly ajar that they won't know they're going to be saved until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which completely goes against the Pauline teachings, which suggests to me once again that Peter wasn't privy to some of the information that Paul is going to be privy to, i.e. the gospel of the grace of God, and this goes back to progressive revelation. But we can still leave it as it is. I'm not going to change the text. I'm not going to throw it out. I'm not going to say Peter was a heretic because he was not. He was simply preaching the plan of salvation, as you knew it at this point in time, but also he's got an eschatological connotation going on here in reference to the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, when he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, that second coming, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. That could be the end of the church age, going into the great tribulation, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. That's very interesting because it shows to me that God has always spoken to the people of Israel and vicariously to all of us through his Jewish prophets, through his male Jewish prophets. And he says, since the world began, which means very clearly to me that mankind has always had light. You can't avoid it. You were told in Revelation uh, how the Lord is going to judge the world because of their sin. And you're also told in Romans chapter one how the glory of God has always been revealed to mankind. But men love darkness rather than light, so they suppress the truth of God they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness but take these verses 19 repent ye therefore and be converted to convert to come out of the old covenants and go into the new covenant uh, to repent to accept you've done wrong to turn from being guilty of crucifying the Jewish Messiah to accept responsibility for being involved with a conspiracy which the Jewish leaders were certainly involved in and just because they were individual Jews, he's not preaching to the leaders per se. The leaders are going to be found in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. That doesn't negate the average man and woman in the streets of Jerusalem being held responsible for their part in the rejection of the Messiah. So as you can see very clearly when these verses are read in conjunction with the four Gospels, it's still very much law and it's almost like unfinished business. Peter being a Jew, standing up on the day of Pentecost with the Jewish apostles to preach to the people of Israel... 
And I showed you from last time how Peter and John went into the Jewish temple together at the hour of prayer and a man got healed. So you see the context is still very much in Israel, in Jerusalem, concerning the Jews under the law because salvation is of the Jews. But you can't miss it. There is an, an eschatological connotation here in reference to the second coming of the Lord. But we know that those of us which are saved today in the church age, we are saved. We, we were told from Ephesians 2 that we are already in the heavenly places, that we have passed from death unto life. So you see a very clear distinction between the Pauline epistles and the book of Acts. And yet most people that read the book of Acts try and teach it doctrinally as being relevant for us today, which is hugely problematic. But let's move on, please. Verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers... A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him he shall hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Moses is now quoted for the first time in the book of Acts. David was quoted nine times, I think, or actually five times directly. Joel was quoted four times indirectly. And now Moses has been quoted directly. And the Jews love Moses. They said, we have Moses. He's our spiritual father. Like the Catholics have Mary, they love Mary. And here Peter's going to say, Moses truly said unto the fathers, back in the Old Testament, a prophet capital P, shall the Lord your God, if you're not a Jew at this point in time, if you were a Gentile hearing this for the first time, the Lord wouldn't be your God. In fact, if you were a Gentile hearing this for the first time, you'd be rather perplexed. Who's Moses? Although you probably would have known who Moses was, but you wouldn't have known much about the Jewish history, not from a specific point of view. You would have known about Moses from an historical point of view, of course, when it came to the parting of the Red Sea and his battle and victory over Pharaoh. But here Moses spoke unto the fathers, or said unto the fathers, probably Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a prophet, shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. And yet Moses comes after the patriarchs. This is quoted from Deuteronomy 18. And I'm going to spend a few moments now, because this piece of scripture gets twitted by the Muslims. But read it very carefully. For Moses, a Jew, truly said unto the fathers, Jewish, a prophet, shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Jewish brethren, there's no Gentiles present. Like unto me, which means that Jesus Christ is like Moses, which means that Moses had the sign gifts, which he certainly did, which means when Jesus Christ arrived, he had the sign gifts as well. And he certainly did like no one did before him or since him. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. We were told in John chapter 5 that in the last day his word is going to judge the world. His word being the written word of God, which of course came after the spoken word of God, you understand. But here the context is in reference to Moses prophesying about the Lord Jesus Christ, which goes back to what I've been saying repeatedly, how this is still very much a Jewish book. And this goes back to how there were 65, 66 prophecies written about the king being Jesus Christ and his kingdom many years before he was even born. Whereas if you go to the Quran or the Hadith, there's nothing in there to offer any evidence that Muhammad was ever prophesied before he even arrived on the scene. I won't spend too much time on Muhammad, but I will say this, that Muslims quote this piece of scripture from Acts 3.22, and they also quote Deuteronomy 18 and say, there you are, Moses is speaking about Muhammad, which is complete nonsense. Muhammad, from a historical perspective, didn't arrive until, what, the 7th century? And yet my research suggests that Muhammad probably didn't even exist, as we know him from an historical perspective. There was a man probably who lived around the 7th century, who was offered to be Muhammad. But I'm not sure that Muhammad, as we know him today, is the man that we have found in the Quran and Hadith. I won't spend too much time on that. But it says, A prophet to the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Which means Jesus Christ was Jewish. He came from his brethren. He came from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes on to say, Like unto me, which offers the sign gifts, because Moses had them, Christ had them as well. Him you shall hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, without exception. You find in John chapter 2, Mary says, whatever he says, do it. 
and on that occasion a great miracle takes place. So be very careful if you uh, witness to Muslims that you don't fall into the trap that somehow this is in reference to Muhammad, which of course it is not. And on top of that, they will tell you that Muhammad is found in the Gospel of John in chapters 16 and 17, where it refers to the great comforter. And the comforter found in John 16 and 17 is the Holy Spirit. So you see how crazy people are, how uh, deceived people are. And that's very much the case where the Lord will give man enough rope to save him, but at the same time, he will give man enough rope to hang himself. If you understand the analogy, if your heart's not right with the Lord, everything else is going to be wrong. But if your heart is right with the Lord, he will save you. And he saves Muslims. He saves Jews. He saves Gentiles. He saves sinners. You know, he's in the business of saving unsaved people. But what he won't do is uh, forgive a heretic who remains a heretic. He won't put up with false teaching or heresy. And that's why you were told to study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Also from 22, I should just say before I move on, the expectation is for Jesus Christ to return at a moment's notice. The early church lived with anticipation of his soon arrival. Now we live in anticipation of the rapture. We know that the rapture could come at a moment's notice. But here Peter is very much of the mindset that the Lord could return at a moment's notice. The same was true of Paul. They did live with the great hope. And we are told in the book of Titus that the great hope, the blessed hope, the blessed return of the Lord, of course, being the rapture, could come at a moment's notice. But I just want to make this point one final time that Peter is probably not necessarily aware of the gospel of the grace of God. He was told that the Gentiles were going to be grafted in. He was told that very clearly uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ back in uh, John chapter 10. And yet he's still thinking that it's possible that Christ is going to come back in the lifetime. And that's why you find in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned to death that he is uh, crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ stands up. And he stands up and he's standing up with the anticipation of coming back to Israel to be their Messiah and King. But of course the Jews kill Stephen, they reject Stephen, and so by doing that, they reject the Messiah for 2,000 years, which means for now, we are the church, we are the people of God, we can pray uh, to the Lord God of the Bible, we can intercede to the Lord God of the Bible, we are the people of God for now. But I won't go into a place in theology, which deals with um, the church permanently replacing Israel, which is another heresy, along with uh, Muhammad being cited here from Acts 3.22. Ridiculous. But let's move on, please. Uh, Acts 3... 23 and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people can i just say this i've been saved 13 years and i've preached to people all over the uk and i've seen many people reject the lord jesus christ i've seen people ridicule the lord jesus christ in fact just yesterday a lady came up to me and she said to me uh the world would be so much better if there wasn't any religion and i said absolutely let's get rid of religion let's get rid of evolution and just have jesus christ oh no she said and started to wave a finger in my face, but she rejected the Messiah right you know, in front of my eyes yesterday, but she wasn't destroyed. So the context here is still in reference to the second coming. And if you want further light, look at Matthew 25, when the king comes back to the earth, and he separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep, of course, are the saved people which appropriated the atonement, whereas the goats are the unsaved people that didn't appropriate the atonement, and have died, and have gone to hell because they have rejected the Messiah, being the Lord God of the Bible. But the context here is still very much with the potential return of the Lord in a moment's notice, an imminent return of the Lord. But of course, he couldn't come back at a moment's notice because the church age was still to be initiated. And on top of that, the Antichrist hadn't yet arrived. And on top of that, the two witnesses spoken of back in Revelation or spoken of very clearly in Revelation, but alluded to back in the Gospels hadn't yet occurred. 
So you can be uh, saved today, and you can be witnessing to unsaved people today, and they can reject the gospel, and they do. They did it in Christ's day as well, but they weren't destroyed. But if you do it, if you do it in the Great Tribulation, you will be destroyed. So here the context is from an eschatological perspective, but I'm teaching it today from an historical perspective because this has already occurred. You can only spiritualize it so far as to say this, that if you reject Christ, you will be destroyed when you die, of course, but you won't be destroyed until you die. I've always taught that if a man or woman is still breathing, there's hope for such a person to be saved. Verse 24, please. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Go back to the Old Testament. You find a chap called Melchizedek who arrives. He's a type of Christ. And it says he has no beginning of days, no mother nor father, no genealogy, so on and so forth. He pictures Christ. There are many types and shadows in the Old Testaments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses was a great type and shadow. Joseph was probably even more of a great type and shadow. Uh, despised of his brethren, beloved of his father, uh, thrown into a pit, betrayed, and yet he's victorious. and becomes a great leader in uh, Egypt, which is a type of the world, which is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ being a great leader over the Gentiles. 24, one more time, yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, doesn't go before Samuel, interestingly, and those that follow after, right up until probably Malachi, as many as have spoken, that's the uh, prophets speaking, and after they would, or when they would be speaking, uh, somebody would write down their words, uh, like a stenographer perhaps, have likewise foretold of these days. What he's saying is, in essence, is this, you people were told that this day was going to occur, and he quoted Joel chapter 2 last time. You were told very clearly that the Messiah was going to come, and when he came, you better listen to him. He came the first time as the son of Joseph, and you put him on a cross, and you crucified him. Yes, the Jews were held up as being responsible for doing this, but it was literally the Romans who put him on the cross. It was the Romans who literally uh, whipped him to death, uh, speared him you know, with a sword. Uh, it was the Romans who put the the crown of thorns on his head, and it was the Romans that literally murdered him for our sins, killed him for our iniquities, so on and so forth. But the Jews, being the people of God, the Jews being the recipients of the oracles of God, are held up as being accountable and responsible for their part in his crucifixion. That's what they were told in 2.38 and 3.19 to repent, to turn from their involvement, to acknowledge their involvement, to receive the Lord's forgiveness for their involvement. But on top of that, you saw very clearly in Matthew 27, let his blood be on us and on our children. We have no king but Caesar. So the Jews are very much under darkness until this current time. And Paul told you in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 how Satan has blinded their eyes. So if you are a saved man or woman, you need to pray for Israel. You need to pray for the Jews. You need to love the Jews. You need to love Israel. And if you are premillennial, you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go back to Jerusalem when he comes back to rule and reign. He's not going to go back to London. Well, he's not going to go to London, he's not going to go to Washington, he's not going to go to Rome, he's going to go back to the eternal city being Jerusalem. And on top of that, this shows the infallibility of the Old Testament. The Lord said that scripture cannot be broken, and you were told in Revelation 22 that if you change any word from scripture, or if you add any word to scripture, God is going to take you out of his book and out of his kingdom. Which to me suggests that it's quite uh, possible for saved man or woman to lose their place in the millennial kingdom, if they tamper with the word of God. And we know that there are 30,000 words missing uh, from the NIV. Over 30,000 words compared to what you find in the King James Bible. But I haven't got time to talk about the Bible issue this morning. Let's move on please. Verse 25. 
Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Ye are the children of the prophets. What prophets? The Jewish prophets, the children of the prophets. There's no Gentiles present. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, Old Testament, saying unto Abraham, the great patriarch, and in thy seed, Isaac, shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. You can't miss it. If you are saved, man or woman, you are saved because of Israel. The root is Jewish. Uh, Romans chapter 12, and the root sustains us, the church. We don't sustain the root. If there's no root, there'd be no church. That's why you cannot hold to a placement theology. You can accept this, that for here and now, we are the people of God, and you are told to abide in Christ. John 15, which means that if you don't abide in Christ, he won't hear your prayers, which means if you're not in Christ, your prayers won't even be heard, let alone answered. So you cannot hold to a placement theology, but for the church age, we are the people of God. So I will say that, that replacement theology, when it comes to the church permanently replacing Israel, is out, but... For here and now we are the people of God, so we can pray for the Jews, so on and so forth. But 25, one last time, ye are the children of the prophets. But that didn't guarantee their salvation. They may have been Jewish, but that wouldn't guarantee their salvation. That's why Paul told you in Romans, I think it's chapter 2, that a Jew isn't one who is one outwardly, but he's one who is uh, one inwardly. Your heart has to be circumcised. When Christ came the first time, he came unto his own, John chapter 1, and his own received him not, Israel. He made the world, but the world didn't know him, but as many as received him, that's you and I, to them gave you the power, to them gave you the right, to them gave you the authority to become the sons of God. So you see, the Jews reject him, and they're still Jews, and we get saved, and yet they are still Jews. So you might be a Jew in Israel, you might wear a skull cap, you might follow the, the Talmud, you might follow the Torah, you might do the Kabbalah, and all that nonsense. It won't save you, my friends, but you're still a Jew, and we still love you, but it won't save you. You need to turn from that, and receive Jesus Christ as your Messiah. And on top of that, Christ has ended the law. He's fulfilled the law. All the law and the prophets, Matthew 11, were until John the Baptist. It's done. Uh, Romans 10, they go about to establish their own righteousness, being the unbelieving Israelites, but won't submit themselves to the righteousness which is of Christ, which is an, an imputed righteousness. So you see, you, know, you can still be a Jew physically, but you're not a Jew spiritually until you're born again. We are spiritual Jews. The church is spiritual Israel. But we are not literal Jews and we are not literal Israel. Verse 25, please. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kings of the earth be blessed. I think I've just read that, but that's okay. 24, 25 still fit together quite nicely. And that seed is sacred. That seed is Isaac. And from Isaac comes a Messiah. And that's a seed that you need to be in. You need to be in the seed of Isaac. You need to be in the seed of the Messiah. You might be a good person, but if you're not in the seed of Christ, you're lost. 26. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Did you see that? Unto you first, the Jews, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, the house of Israel, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. But did you miss that? There's a clear picture of unlimited atonement. Calvinists say that Christ just died for the elect, but here... You saw it very clearly. He was sent to the house of Israel to bless him first of all and to turn away everyone from his iniquities. So for me, that's a clear picture of unlimited atonement. And yet I don't think many Calvinists have seen that verse before. They'll quote chapter 13 where it speaks about being ordained 
to eternal life. And I'll explain that correctly when I get to chapter 13. But here you saw it very clearly. Unto you first God, the people of Israel, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. All of the Jews, not just some of the Jews, all of the Jews, in turning away every one of you, without exception, from his iniquities. So therefore Christ was sent to the people of Israel as an unlimited atonement. Not a limited atonement, that's heresy. He didn't die just for the elect. He died for everybody. And you were told that so clearly in 1 John chapter 2. But you have to personally appropriate the atonement to be saved. Which means you have to turn personally to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you do that, he will save you. But if you don't turn to him, he won't save you. That's why universalism doesn't work. That's why universal salvation is a heresy. And that's why most Catholics are falling apart. Or most churches, I should say, are falling apart. Catholics too, of course. But most churches are falling apart around the world because they hold to a placement theology on the one hand. And they also hold to universalism. That somehow everybody's going to be saved. It's all going to work out well in the end. But you know better than that. You are told that many are going to say, Lord, Lord, Matthew 7. And he'll say, I never knew you depart from your workers of iniquity. And they go into the lake of fire with his weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The road to hell is wide, but the gate, the entrance to heaven is narrow. And few there be which find the gate. So 26 verses from Acts chapter 3. And you couldn't miss it. Peter and John commenced this chapter working as a pair. And that goes back to the Gospels when the Lord sent the apostles out in twos. So if it's possible, if you can go out in twos, you should do. If you have a saved partner to work with, you should do so. Even the cults go out in twos, I should add. But if it's not possible, that's okay. The Lord will still bless you and sustain you. They go to the temple because the temple was the centre of their world. And yet Christ said, I am the Lord of the temple. And on top of that, he gave them a good 40 years uh, period of grace before he destroyed the temple. When Titus went up and uh, burned it to the ground. A man gets healed outside of the temple. He's a cripple, and uh, Peter and John take him up. And also very interesting, I'm not sure I mentioned this from last time, in verse 7 it says how Peter took him up by the right hand. And I was thinking to myself last night, would that mean that Peter was left-handed? I'm not sure. But it says he took him up by the right hand, chapter 3, verse 7, and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Straight away. Don't come back tomorrow to be healed again. This man was healed straight away, and he goes in the temple, dancing, rejoicing, and leaping. So you see, the temple wasn't a problem. It was the apostate unbelieving Jews which were their problem. Hence what they were told to save themselves from this untoward generation. Chapter 2 verse 40. Moving on from there the man is healed. He's dancing around. He's greatly filled with joy. Verse 11. He holds Peter and John because the multitude have seen a miracle. And they go running in to see what's happened. And from there on this man has been healed miraculously. And that leads into a great opportunity to preach to the Jews. And that's why they were told to repent. 19 of their involvement with crucifying the Messiah, verses uh, 12, 13, 14, 15. And that man got healed, and the Jews are about to probably turn to the Lord in faith, and yet the religious elite, the religious crowd are going to get involved in chapter 4, which we'll look at next Sunday, and they thwart a great picture of salvation, which still is the same today. Most of our enemies are from organised religion, and most of our enemies are from organised churches, organised religion. They despise what we do, because they think we are a threat to them. We're no threat to them, but we do uh, speak against them, we do rebuke them, but we are not on the streets to stand against organised religion, we're on the streets to win souls to Christ. And uh, once we finish this service, we'll go back onto the streets and do some more outreach to try and win souls to Christ. So you see, a healing leads to a preach, a preach leads to an awakening, but then organised religion steps in and thwarts it. But one last time, uh, chapter 326, this is a great scripture to use to 
refute Calvinism unto you first God having raised up his son Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities unlimited atonement his blood was shed for everybody and everything even the animals I should add you find it very clearly from Romans chapter 8 but you have to personally appropriate the atonement and do that by believing on him the just shall live by faith turn to him if you're not saved receive him and he will save you to the uttermost next up Acts chapter 4 